direct your attention to this morning are found in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 25 through 33. I'll begin reading at verse 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. It is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray one more time this morning, shall we? Father, again, we want to come to you because we... we We understand that that the scriptures are your words. They're your thoughts penned that we might know you and know how to please you. We know that we're not just studying some book like we do in our classes in school. But we're studying the very words of God. God breathed. Not just good advice, but instruction that, that we would heed it. Because we fear you and because we love you. But Lord, even so, we need grace. We need help. Not just to understand, but but to apply. And so I pray that you would work in power, Spirit. Because you know where each of us are at. You know our struggles. You know our temptations. You know how we need to be encouraged. And so I pray that you would work through your word. That you would nourish us. You would feed us. That we might be spiritually strengthened. And truly honor you with our Lord, if there's anybody here that does not know you, that has not been born again, has never tasted of your love, and does not know the forgiveness that has been purchased for them in Christ, that you would open their eyes, that they might, even this day, begin to know your love that surpasses understanding, and the peace that accompanies that would remain with them the rest of their days. We we pray these things in Christ's name. There's a story about a newlywed couple uh, who were riding in a horse-drawn carriage headed for their honeymoon. And suddenly the the horse that was leading them bolted. And the man said to the horse, that's one. They went on a little farther and the horse bolted again. And the man responded, that's two. They went on a little farther and the horse bolted again.
again. And the man said, all right, that's three. He jumped down out of the carriage, took out a gun, and shot the horse. And, and the, his new bride, startled, asked him, what have you done? What made you do that? And he looked at her and he said, that's one. Well, after reading Christ's instructions last week for wives to submit to their husbands, some might falsely assume that that's the tenor that husbands should have with their wives. But what we discover as we continue reading this passage in Ephesians is that that's the exact opposite of how Christ says husbands are to relate to their wives. Notice that Paul does not say to husbands, control your wives. Make them obey you. Order around. Notice he doesn't even say, be head over your wife. What's he say? He commands them twice to love their wives. And then, of course, with the highest standard possible, as Christ loved the church. There's no greater love than Christ's love for the church. There are two parts to this instruction to husbands and their love. He instructs them to love Christ, love their wives as Christ loved the church and then to love their wives as their own bodies, seeking to clarify this principle. So let's look at that first point in verses 25 to 27 where Paul presents the model of love. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Like they're to model their love for their wives after Christ's love, not just his past love, but his present love for the church. Again, the model he points to is not the examples that were given in television sitcoms. It's not the model given in sappy 80s rock ballads. Or it's not even the great examples of Christians in the past that he points to. He doesn't point to our, our, our father's love for our mother. The model that we're given is Christ's love for the church. Now, those other models aren't necessarily bad. But the model, the standard that husbands, Christian husbands are given is they are called, made, they're, they're commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. We also need to recognize, again, that this is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not just good advice. Which means that if a husband chooses not to love their wife in this way, they're not just making a foolish choice they're actually acting in rebellion against God. 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3 says this, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Christian husbands should want to do this. And even when they see that they're not doing it, in their hearts they should strive to do that because Christ's commandments are not burdensome. And I believe because you're genuine believers and God's commands aren't burdensome of you, that you really do want to understand how to love your wife in this way. And so Paul gives us a model by pointing to Christ, but then next he gives us the method. He gave himself up for her. This is how we're to love. We are to die to ourselves in order to 
secure the best interests of our wives. See, biblical love is doing what is best for the object of our love, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the cost to ourselves. Biblical love asks not what's in it for me, but what is the need and what can I do to meet that need? That's biblical love. Biblical love will sacrifice security, life dreams, obviously entertainment, but respect even, and at times personal health, because it cares more about the interests of the one loved than for self. And again, just consider this is how Christ has loved us. Galatians 1.4 The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He gave himself so that we'd be delivered. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Of course, Philippians 2, verse 6. Christ, though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, think about all that that entailed. It wasn't just that he died. He left worship, glory, and took on frail human flesh that, was, that, was, that had to endure the consequences of sin, though he was not a sinner. And he did that simply to meet our need because he loved us. Robertson McQuilkin, I think, is a, is a good example of such love for his wife. He was the former president of Columbia Bible College and seminary. And in 1990, he stepped away from that prestigious position in order to care for his wife who uh, had... Uh, Alzheimer's, and she would even be terrified if he wasn't with her. And some of his friends advised him to put her into an institution. But instead, he chose to actually leave Columbia in that position, eight years short of the retirement, in order to care for her. And he closed his his resignation speech with these words. He says, it's not that I have to. It's that I get to. I love her very dearly. And it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. And it's a great honor to care for such a person. Later on, in a 2004 article in Christianity Today, he explained his decision further. He said, When the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before, in sickness and in health, till death doeth part? This was no grim duty to which I stoically was resigned. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. And likewise, the primary way that Christian husbands are to love their wives isn't primarily through providing or for protecting 
or through physical affection, though these are all good and necessary. But the primary way husbands are called to love their wives is by letting go of those things that are precious to them in order to meet the spiritual needs of their wife. So what would God have you give up to meet the spiritual needs of your spouse? Brothers, let us not love in just words. Let us love in deeds and in truth. Paul has given us the model of our love, Christ's love for the church, the method of our love, which is self-denial. Next, he gives us the mission, the aim of our love. That is that, that, we, that, that he might sanctify her. Verse 26. That he might sanctify her, speaking of the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ specifically loved us by sanctifying us. And it says by washing us, cleansing us with the word. What this is referring to is that spiritual cleansing that happens when we're born again. When When we first believe and trust in Christ for salvation. Our sins are washed. We are clean. We're purified, set apart to be his. There's now no condemnation. And that happens through the hearing of the word of God preached. Or through the reading of the word of God as we finally understand the gospel and what Christ has accomplished for us. As it says in Titus 3 verse 4. In fact, go ahead and turn there. Titus chapter 3. says this beginning in verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Christ loved us by sanctifying us. And the implication is that, that just so husbands will love their wives in seeking to bring about their sanctification. The word sanctify again means to be set apart as special unto God. And notice, even as it says here in Titus, even though we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, even though that was our condition, we didn't deserve any love. We were lost, we were hopeless. When he saw us in that state, he did what was necessary to cleanse us and to set us apart as holy and blameless that we might reign with him. His love for us had nothing to do with us. And likewise, husbands, you're not called to love your wife based on any credibility that she has, not based on her godliness, not based on her faithfulness, regardless of how godly or ungodly she is, you are called to love her like Christ loved the church to this same degree. Like Christ saved us and gave us what we needed above all other things. And what that was, was we needed holiness because without holiness, no one can see God. We would be consumed when we come to stand before his judgment throne. So he cleansed us and made us holy 
And therefore, the implication is the greatest need of our wives is the same thing. It's holiness. Now let that sink in. The greatest needs of our wives is not more stuff. It's not that we would make more money. It's not more clothes. It's not even that they would have more time with us. The greatest need of our wives is to love God with all of their being, with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. And so recognize the goal of this sacrificial love that we're called to isn't to spoil our wives. The goal is their sanctification. And that's really important to clarify because I think some people have this notion that Loving our wives like Christ loved the church just means that we need to just give up everything we want in order just to meet whatever their desires are. But the reality is we need to be thinking not just what do they, what does my wife want, but what does she really need? What is, what it, and what she needs more than anything else is Christ. And she needs to be sanctified so that she would love him with all her being. Just like Christ didn't die for us in order to spoil us and give us whatever we demand. Christ died for us so that we would be holy. So, so what is it that you can do to bring about holiness in your wives? What do you need to start doing? Or on the other hand, what is it that you need to stop doing? Another way to ask that question is, what are the means of grace? What, what brings about sanctification and spiritual growth? Well, you guys actually, I'm sure you know the answer. You hear it enough from this pulpit. Right? The Bible identifies three things in particular. The Word of God, prayer, and ministry to one another. So husbands, how are you washing your wife with the water of the Word? That is, are you spending time in the Word together as a couple? Studying it together, discussing it together. Do you, after... after Sundays, do you discuss the sermon that you just heard and talk about not only what does it mean, but how do you live this out in your lives together? What implications does it have in your family? Do you discuss Scripture? How much does the Bible get referenced in your conversations with one another? And when you make decisions, do you you point to what the Bible says, how it's influencing that decision? Or you just say, well, we're going to do this because it's what I want to do or because I'm the head. If you're being a faithful husband, you want to make your decisions based upon Scripture and its principles. When Paul exhorts wives in 1 Corinthians 14.33 to ask their husbands at home about questions that arise in church, the implication is that husbands need to be familiar with the Word. That they're ready to give answers and, and explain the Word of God. Which means one of the best ways you can love your wives, men is immerse yourself in Scripture. Get as much of the Bible in your life as you can. Your, your wife does not need a good golfer or a good hunter or a good martial artist or whatever it is that you enjoy doing. Those aren't bad. But what your wife needs more than anything is a husband that understands the Word of God and strives to live it out with his wife. And I think this also includes freeing them up to receive teaching. And that may be that you choose to, to watch the kids 
so that she gets time in the Word herself or is able to go to a conference where she can get extra teaching or even you watch the kids so that she can come to a Wednesday night prayer service where she hears the Word taught just another time during the week. Free up your wives so that they can be spiritually fed. Secondly, we need to pray for our wife. I mean, it's worth even asking, do you pray for your wife? And how often? Husbands, you should be praying for your wife daily, if not by the hour. You should be hypersensitive to her spiritual needs because it's through your prayers that she's protected from temptation. It's through your prayers that she's strengthened in her spiritual resolve and that that she's guided into making wise decisions. Your prayers work to help her do these things. If you're not praying for her, you shouldn't have any expectation that she would make good decisions or that she would avoid temptation. Prayer is what enables faithfulness. That's why we even have a prayer service is because we understand that we can't bring about our own sanctification or the evangelism of the lost in our own power. It's not good enough just to teach. We need to plead with God to bring these things about. And likewise, husbands, we need to pray for our wives. And not only praying for her, do you pray with her so that she could hear what burdens you? She can hear it in your tone of voice that you really care about her spiritual interest. You're not just seeking to control her or have your will be done in the family. But that you, you, you're, you're burdened that she would know Christ and love him with all her heart. And I suppose you could simply tell her these things. But again, actions are far more powerful than words. And prayer is an action. So show her how you're praying, how much you care for her needs. Let her hear it in, in your burdens as you bring them before the throne of grace. Again, let's take Christ's model as an example. Turn, in, turn to, to Christ's prayer for his bride in John 17. And I'd even encourage you to think about the way Christ prays here as he's praying for the sanctification of the church. But how might this influence and give you a model on how you can pray for your wife? I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. Jesus says to his father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. So I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. He's speaking of his death there that they may also be sanctified in the truth. All right, if this is how Christ prayed for the church, I think it just gives a good example of how, husbands, we should be able to pray for our wives. Father, I've, I've protected her. I've guarded her. I've pleaded with her. I'm not with her now, so please, you protect her. Keep her safe. Keep her from the evil one. 
Give her wisdom. So we need to pray for our wives. Thirdly, we bring about sanctification through ministering to them. Right? As we see in 1 Corinthians 13, Christian ministry or service all needs to be driven by sacrificial love. If we're not loving in our service, it's vain. We're just like a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. And we know that we know how to serve based upon the needs of others. Love doesn't serve according to our desires primarily. But rather, love serves according to what is the need. It sees a need and it seeks to meet that need. I mean, just think, for instance, a, a mother doesn't choose to change a baby's diaper because she feels like she has some special anointing from God and she's gifted to do that. And she does it because her baby's crying and she has a need. So she serves to meet that need. The loving service isn't based upon giftedness. It's based upon a passion to meet a need. And it's the same in the church and it's same, it should be the same in our families. We serve because we long to see needs met. So whether it's service or counsel or physical affection or teaching, we do this because we want to meet a need. So Paul's point is that husbands should love like Christ by following his example of sacrificing himself in order to meet our need to be made holy. And his second point in verses 28 to 33 actually provides the theological justification for why Christ loves us this way. It's the reason Christ loves us like this. He says, love your wives as your own bodies. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. What it's saying is the reason Christ loves his body this way is because he's one with his bride. Christ is one with the body of Christ. He's its head. They're united. And the logic is obvious. If we too are one with our wives, we should love them because we're one with them. In loving them, we are loving ourselves. And it's natural to love ourselves. And that's why Paul says in verse 28, in the same way as Christ loves, husbands should love their wives because they're one with them. Right? Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. All right, so the logic is clear. We know this from, everybody knows this from their own experience. When our bodies get hungry, we do what we can to feed them. When we get sick, we, we, we take medicine so that our bodies might be healed. When we get tired, we rest. When we get hurt, we seek to alleviate whatever's causing the pain. And what he's saying is that's exactly how husbands should treat their wives. When their wives have these needs, the husband should not be thinking, what do I want to do? He should be thinking, what do I need to do to meet this need? Because she is one with me. Right? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. That word nourish refers to giving your body whatever it needs to grow. And, and the word cherish actually means, to, literally, it comes from the word to warm. Think of a, like a mother 
warming her infant child, cuddling it close. In fact, actually, the other, only other time this word is used in Scripture, that's, that's actually what's being spoken of. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care or cherishing her own children. Like there, there is no more tender picture given than, than a mother with her infant child nursing it. And Paul is saying, Husbands, that's how you're supposed to love your wife. With tenderness and gentleness in, in how you touch her, how you speak to her, how you treat her. If you wouldn't treat your infant child that way, you shouldn't do that with your wife. And just as we all have certain health weaknesses that we have to be guarded against. I mean, think of allergies that people might have. or you might, you might not be able to hear well or see well. Or maybe there's certain foods you have to you avoid because they upset your stomach. Um, husbands need to consider, again, how to guard their wives from things that afflict them. Right? We all have physical weaknesses, and just, just likewise, we all have spiritual weaknesses. And knowing that, we need to do whatever we can to prevent those weaknesses from being exposed or from uh, lashing out. So if your wife maybe struggles with anxiety, what can you do to mitigate her fear? If she struggles with um, not controlling her tongue, what can you do to help her in that? To, again, love covers over a multitude of sins. How can you cover over that? How can you protect her from her own weakness? Just like you have weaknesses that you need your wife to help you with. You need to be thinking, what can I help my wife with? Not criticizing her or condemning her or mocking her for those weaknesses, but taking responsibility to protect her from those things. You need to cherish her, just as you do your own bodies. So Paul continues, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. We're to love our wives this way because this is exactly how Christ loves the church. Notice it's present tense. It's not just because this is how Christ loved the church, but how he currently loves the church. Right? Christ loves us this way now because we're united to him now. We've been united with him. Just as a husband has become one with his wife. In fact, that's why Paul cites Genesis 2.24. In verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's saying the very same thing that happens when a marriage is consummated is, is, is likened to what happens when a believer is united with Christ. That union can't be broken. It's permanent. We're one with them. A very real union, an unbreakable spiritual bond is created. In fact, this is why Jesus says in Mark 10, when he cites this very same verse in Genesis, he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Speaking of divorce. Because there's a union that takes place. And just like we can't be ripped away from Christ, but our union is permanent. Likewise, husbands, nothing can separate you from your, the union you have with your wife. You're one. And he says this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And again, just think how permanent and strong 
is our union with Christ. We love Romans 8.38. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. It's permanent. And likewise, so is the union between a man and his wife. Paul acknowledges that the mysterious union that takes place in a marriage is profound. But just the same, the mysterious union that takes place when we're born again is even more profound. It's so profound, actually, that Paul doesn't even try to explain it. He just asserts that it is true. And because it is true, consider that Paul's instructions here in Ephesians regarding loving wives, like Christ of the church, or submitting to husbands, these instructions aren't just cultural. They're not accidental. They're not temporary. They're rooted in the very design that God has from creation and the design that he has woven into his plan of redemption. That's why he says that a marriage is a reflection of the mysterious union of Christ and the church. This brings Paul to his conclusion in which he addressed both husbands and wives regarding their respective roles. He reiterates the command to husbands. He says, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And then he speaks to the wives again. He says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Interestingly, this is actually a different command. It's the same command he gives husbands originally. And, but this is a different instruction than he gave the wives in verses 22 to 24, where he told them there to submit to their husbands. Here he says that they are to respect them. And what's the difference? Well, the point is, is that a wife is commanded to respect her husband from the heart. God is not interested in just outward obedience. In fact, what do we call just outward obedience? It's hypocrisy. In some of the, some of the, 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 the chapter with all the, the most woes in the Bible, like woe is you, it's delivered to hypocrites. There's nothing more disgusting in God's sight than somebody who acts outwardly something that's contrary to what's in their heart. God's not looking for just external obedience. He wants internal obedience. Not just external love, but love that comes from the heart. That truly does care about another person. Respect that comes from the heart. That, that chooses to respect out of, out of, out of worship for God. It's really, Paul's getting at this submission and love. It's a reflection of worship. So these commands are good, but they're also challenging to live out consistently. So I find it personally helpful to just have examples. Of course, Paul has given us the highest example, Christ's love for the church. But I personally find it helpful to know, to just look at examples from other men in my life and in, in from history as well. And so I want to close by just reading a letter from Martin Lloyd-Jones to his wife, Bethann. It was written on the 18th of May, 1937. 
uh, after Lloyd-Jones boarded his ship to come to America and he was leaving his wife and children behind. Just hours after they had departed, he writes this. My dear Beth Ann, the fact that I'm writing to you from here on this particular date is altogether wrong. And it makes me feel very odd. As far as I can remember, this is the first time ever that I have written to you for your birthday. I hope that this ship letter telegram that I sent you this morning arrives safely on your birthday morning. So this is, he's writing her a birthday card, so to speak, and he's not worth there. The authorities told me that there was no doubt about it. And I had endless pleasure and happiness in sending it. I somehow felt I was in touch with you once more in this awful distance of separation. A thing like that is a great help. But oh, what a poor substitute. I cannot describe the various feelings I have experienced since I saw you last on Waterloo Station. Well, goodness, that was only a few hours before. All the feelings I've had ever since I saw you last on Waterloo Station, and I had better not try to do so. Let me say just this much. Thinking of you gives me endless happiness. And I am more certain than ever that there is no one in the world like you, nor even approaching you, not in all the world. I don't know if I'm losing my reason, but I often feel that you're with me and I could almost talk to you. I have at times tried to imagine where you all three are and what you're doing. I would give the whole world if you could have could have been with me. But there I must be content to look forward to some four weeks today. When I shall, God willing, be back with you again, looking into your eyes and sitting beside you. I think I shall be perfectly content just to be with you and Elizabeth and Anne, just sitting with the three of you and doing nothing else. I've said in my letter telegram that I'm sending you all my love and here I am saying it once more. You shall give some bits of it to the two girls. I've been thinking of 11 years ago tonight. That was her birthday night. When we went together to Covenant Garden and then back to Dilly's, I thought at that time that I loved you. But I had to live with you for over 10 years to know you properly and so to love you truly. I know that I'm deficient in many things and must at times disappoint you. That really grieves me and I'm trying to improve. But believe me, if you could see my heart, you would be amazed at how great is my love. I hope you know, indeed I know that you know, in spite of all my failings, I can do nothing but say again that from the human standpoint, I belong entirely to you. This sample birthday letter I think is a good example, husbands, of how we can express our love to our wives. To just to, to, just to tell them what they mean to us. And, and I think we should, while we still can. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wife that you've given me. How richly you've blessed me and my family through her. And I thank you for the wives that you've blessed my brothers with. To help sanctify them, to encourage them support them. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us 
as couples, as families, to, to grow in understanding how we can better live for you, how we can better love one another, that we would not be conformed to the patterns of this world, that we would be truly transformed, renew our minds, so we love like we're supposed to love and have the families that you've designed us to have. Give us insight, give us understanding so that we could be more joyful and more at peace. We pray these things in Christ's name.